Welcome back to the Higher Ground Society podcast. This is your host, Gerald Crook, and I am very, very excited um, about this installment of um, it's the last installment of our Women's History Month series. Interestingly enough, this episode is a little special because we're combining both Women's History Month and Black History Month together because I have um, one of Alabama's greatest Black History Month, uh, Black History figures, if you will. And uh, that is Miss Cheyenne Webb Kreisberg. Hello, Miss Kreisberg. Hello. It's so, it's so uh, glad to be with you. And I'm so happy that we've come to this juncture. I've been looking forward to this. I really have. Okay. And so for those of you who don't know, um, Miss Cheyenne, um, her role in Alabama history is, well, she was deemed as um, the civil rights movement's smallest freedom fighter by none other than Dr. Martin Luther King. And you might wonder how she might have came across that name. It's because uh, she was the youngest person involved with the first attempt of the Selma to Montgomery March, which has come to be known as Bloody Sunday. And so um, before we get into that part of your incredible story, Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up before in Selma, um, before Bloody Sunday. Well, I grew up in George Washington Carver projects mm-hmm. from a poor family of eight. Mm-hmm. And the now historic Brown Chapel AME Church, the church that Dr. King and others came to to start the movement in Selma. It sat right in the center of George Washington Carver Project. So my apartment was right on the side of Brown Chapel Mm -hmm. AME Church. Mm -hmm. So for us as children living in the project, much of our time was spent playing in front of the church. We used to skate in front of Brown Chapel Church. we used to do a lot of those things that children would do and um, play ball in front of you. You know how you you played the square ball? Mm-hmm. We did a lot of that in front of Brown Chapel Church. So it was kind of like a hangout. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we did the normal things that poor people were doing back then. Of course, I, you know, my parents were working in the factory. My dad worked at the table uh, uh, the table company factory making tables okay. and my mom worked at the sewing factory. Mm. So all they knew was to work hard to help provide for their eight children. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't any uh, conversation leading up to going to college during that time because mm. during that time, they couldn't afford it and they didn't have the Pell grants and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. All they wanted us to do was to go to elementary, junior high, high school, and perhaps get a job or go to the service. Mm. So, uh, but being poor during that time, even though I was a poor little girl, I Mm. was a very inquisitive little girl. Mm -hmm. So life then, for what we knew it for being, being poor, it still was good in a real sense. But the bad part that 
I knew and, and so many of us knew is that there totally was a difference between how black folks was treated versus how white folks were treated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, you know, I, I've heard uh, my parents have t- t- talked about that, too. You know, the, the, they call it the living on different sides of the railroad tracks. Is that kind of what you experienced? That's experience? right. That's right. And you've seen it in many ways every day. You know, mm-hmm. when when my parents would uh, take me to the to the dentist, uh, we we always saw the signs for black folk only. Mm-hmm. And then we saw the sign that said for white folk only. Mm-hmm. And on the black side, it didn't look nothing like the white side looked. Mm-hmm. It, it was always be- beautiful and nice on the white. And then we had different water fountains that we had to drink out, out of. Mm-hmm. One for blacks and one for whites. And then there were certain restaurants we couldn't go in. There were certain stores we couldn't go in. Mm-hmm. And there were even places and neighborhoods that we couldn't go, our parents could go and work for those white folk, but mm-hmm. we couldn't go in the neighborhood just to be in the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So there, it was it was just blatant differences mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, how white folks were treated and, and, and the look and the feel mm-hmm. of what was going on in the 60s. Uh, it was definitely a great deal of discrimination. So, you know, for me, it didn't take me long to find out to to what extent that was like, because I was always asking questions. Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why we can't do this? Even in the theater, when we went to the theater, black folk had to sit upstairs mm-hmm. and, not, and the white folks had to sit downstairs. And it, it was just so. And sometimes my questions would be answered and sometimes they wouldn't because my parents just didn't want to deal with it. They knew why, but they just didn't want to deal with it. Right. But then later, after I would become more involved in the movement and surround myself by what we call freedom fighters mm-hmm. who came to change things mm-hmm. in Selma, a lot of my questions were not, were not only answered, a lot of things that as I continued to be in the midst of mass meetings and and certainly after meeting Dr. King, mm-hmm. I understood a lot. Absolutely. So th- that's a great segue into my next question. You know, so you are, you know, eight or nine years old. How, how, how old were you? I met Dr. King at seven. At seven. And okay. I was eight years old. Uh, the youngest on the bloody Sunday march. Okay. So this is 1964, 1965. You're seven, eight years old. Um, that's pretty, I mean, <laughs> that's actually, I mean, it's, it's an incredible story, but if you think about it, it's, these are incredibly dangerous times, courageous times with the black communities, you know, striving for freedom, striving for um, civil rights. And these are adults that we typically see doing this kind of work, but you were seven to eight years old doing this. So, let's just jump into the your bloody sunday experience starting like how did you when you first met dr king so let's start there you first met dr king you were seven and tell us about that well you know as i mentioned to you my best friend and i used to play in front of brown chapel all the time Mm -hmm. and plus you know we had sunday school teachers who spent 
a great deal of time with us who were a member of Brown Chapel Church. Mm-hmm. We were going to Bibles classes and they were doing little things uh, for us young people in the project, you mm-hmm. know, growing up. But we played in front of Brown Chapel uh, Church a lot. So on this particular day, as we were playing, I, I remember vividly these beautiful cars that had driven up. Mm-hmm. That was something kind of unusual <laughs> for us to see. And as I mentioned to you, I was a very nosy and inquisitive young girl. <laughs> and as these beautiful cars had driven up, we started seeing the people come out of those cars. So we started walking towards the first three to four cars as they were getting out. And we noticed that there were these men that were surrounding this one particular man who had on this nice white starchy shirt. He had on a black tie, black slacks. And there was one particular man who was assisting him and and helping him to put his suit coat jacket on. And that man turned to us because that's just how close we had gotten to them. Uh He said, do do you little girls know who this man is? And of course, we didn't know who any of them were. (laughs) He said to us, this is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mm-hmm. And Dr. King immediately started talking to us, mm-hmm. asking us the normal questions that adults would ask children. Mm-hmm. He asked us our names, where mm-hmm. do we live? And we kind of pointed our little fingers in the direction of our home. Mm-hmm. He asked us how old we were, what school we went to. And as they were getting ready to go, he and his entourage, as they were getting ready to go, into the rear of Brown Chapel Church on this day to have a strategy meeting, Dr. King kept talking to us. I mean, from the time that he was introduced and by the time they got to that rear door, as he got ready to enter into that door, that same man who assisted him with this suit coat jacket, he said, you children can go on and play now. He said, because we're about to have a meeting. And Dr. King immediately said to him, he said, no, let them stay. And he took us by our hands and took us on into the church, into the room where that meeting would take place. And after he took us into that room, do you know what he did? He went and got two small chairs. Oh, wow. And he set those chairs in the back of that room and asked us to have a seat. And then after he got the two chairs for us, he went and got himself a chair Mm -hmm. and he set his chair in front of us. Mm -hmm. And he continued to talk to us before that meeting was started. He asked us, he said, now, what do you little girls want? And we looked at each other, not knowing how to respond to that question. He said, now, when I ask you, what do you want? He said, I want you children to say freedom. (laughs) And he asked us that question. Of course, we said freedom. He said, now say it louder. And Mm. then we said it louder. Then he asked us another question. He said, now when do you little girls want it? And we didn't know how to respond to that question. He (laughs) said, now when I ask you when do you want it, I want you to say now that was our first acquaintance Mm -hmm. with the late, great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a day and time 
that I would never, ever forget, not even knowing what led to me in terms of the deafness mm-hmm. of my mind mm-hmm. with not only getting involved in that struggle in Selma because of his influence, mm-hmm. because of meeting him, but it helped to shape and mold me mm-hmm. when I didn't even think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, years later, and even now, I don't know what direction I would have gone into mm-hmm. if I had not been molded and shaped through those turbulent times mm-hmm. after having met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Congressman John Lewis, mm-hmm. the late Hosea Williams, C.T. Vivian, Jonathan Daniels, Viola Luso. I mean, the list can go on and on mm-hmm. because these were the people that I was I, I, I spent a lot of time with because mm-hmm. I became a very disobedient child. Oh, yeah. My parents couldn't do anything with me. It's like even when Dr. King started that strategy meeting, mm-hmm. he said, I want to see you little girls before I leave. And I couldn't wait to get home to tell my parents mm-hmm. that I had met this man by the name of Dr. King. But you know what my dad had told me? He said, you just better stay from around that church oh, wow. and, uh, and from around that mess. I didn't quite understand that. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand it for number one, I played around there. And that's where my parents was familiar with me playing there mm-hmm. a lot. But when I told them I had met Dr. King and some other people and they were having a meeting and, and Dr. King wanted to see uh, us again before he, and my dad had told me, you just better stay from around. Don't you go back around that mess. And even in spite of him telling me that, I had already made up in my mind, I was going to see Dr. King again. That's just how, that's just how much, you know, being that little girl, he had gravitated my heart and my mind. Mm-hmm. Just with him giving me that special attention. Mm-hmm. So I was in and out of that church waiting for that meeting to be, be over because they were there for hours. And of course, mm-hmm. after that meeting was over, Dr. King, uh, we uh, walked Dr. King and his entourage uh, back to their cars. And, and before he would leave, he said, listen, we're going to start a movement in Selma. And we coming back for some mass meetings. I want to see you little girls when I come back. And he kissed us on our cheeks. And it was just, it just, it was just exciting Not to bad. have met such a man. And mm-hmm. from that point on, I became a disobedient child. <laughs> I was waiting for mass meetings, anything to happen around. But I wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. And I used to slip out of my back door at night because my parents would go to bed early because mm-hmm. they had to wake up like 3, 30, and 4 wow. to be at um, at work at 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So I would slip out the back door, and regardless of how many warnings they had given me, mm-hmm. they just couldn't do anything with me. Wow. And I would be at those mass meetings joining in the singing uh, of those freedom songs. It didn't mm-hmm. take 
it didn't take me long to to learn those songs. Of course, one of my favorite was I ain't gonna let nobody turn me around and uh <laughs> and clapping my hand with those because it wasn't ordinary to just join that movement for adults mm -hmm. because most of the people who came to be a part of that struggle, they came from other places, right. black folks and courageous white folks, mm -hmm. because it was risky. It was. And a lot of the people in Selma, some who may wanted to join and they were afraid because they could not only lose their jobs, they could lose their lives. Right. But there were some courageous black folk who mm -hmm. did participate like Reverend F.D. Reese, okay. Amelia Boynton Robinson, Marie Foster, uh, Margaret Moore, and, and, and some others. It was a few mm -hmm. because there were churches who were afraid to even open up their doors. Mm -hmm. But being in the midst of all of that, you know, it didn't take me long as I grew in that movement to understand that number one, black folks didn't have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And when I asked my parents about them becoming registered voters, they didn't want to talk about it because most black folks, again, thought that if they had become registered voters, they would they would lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. So everything was risky. You mm -hmm. don't know what will happen to you. So I started wanting I wanted to be a part of that change, not just for black folk but particularly for my parents sure. because they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And see, it's something about what happened in the 60s, mm -hmm. uh, about being in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. It was something that was deeply embedded in your heart and in your soul when you were led by a man by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mm -hmm. This man wasn't just a voice. He was more than a voice. Mm -hmm. He gave he gave you and he taught us and he trained. And when I say us, even though I was a child, I felt the love. I mm -hmm. felt the agape love. Mm -hmm. I felt the faith. Mm -hmm. I felt the courage that Dr. King gave to us, even in the midst of some time that we were afraid. But we still knew that we had to do something to bring about those changes. Absolutely. Wow. So that's an incredible experience. I mean, I often, I mean, I love history and I often, you know, encounter people that I love to, you know, meet and sit down with and to hear that you actually had an opportunity to do that with someone like Dr. King is incredible. And I can, and everything you just said, I can imagine uh, is true, you know, being encouraged and being inspired by him. So I'm so glad that you had that opportunity. Um, and it sounds like it led you down this path of activism and, 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 and um, doing what's right uh, for, for the, your people. And so you, so you said that was a 19, you were seven years old. So that was 1964. So f fast forward to 1965 around February, March, we have, they've come up with a plan to do this march from someone to Montgomery. And the first attempt was on March 7th. So tell us about that day for you. So you, you said you've been hardheaded, you've been disobedient. And uh, it sounds like this particular day, it was kind of, uh, it was intense, I imagine. So, so tell us about it from your perspective. Well, there have been several marches, uh, I can say protests. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, many people, some people weren't so familiar about the Berlin Wall that they put up in the, in the middle of the street, down the street from Brown Chapel to keep black folk from marching to the mm-hmm. courthouse. Mm-hmm. You couldn't pass it. But I, I participated on many protests with, with March with marching, missing school and marching to the courthouse. Okay. But when when this when the bloody Sunday march was announced that this would be the first attempt for courageous marchers to march from Selma to Montgomery mm-hmm. in an effort for black people to gain their right to vote. Many threats have been made about the possibilities of what will happen to anyone who would participate on that march. Mm-hmm. However, my parents had threatened me over and over again. Again, in mm-hmm. spite of that, I had written them a note and put it on the washing machine that, that day. And I was trying to explain to them in my own childish way that I had to go and participate on this march. Mm-hmm. And I went out to Brown Chapel Church on this day, but the difference on this particular day than other days that I had gone to Brown Chapel Church, I would always go to the front and, and, and join in the singing on the front pew. But this day I sat on the back pew. Hmm. And I sat on that pew and I listened because Dr. King wasn't there on that mm-hmm. day. It was the late Congressman John Lewis, the late Hosea Williams, mm-hmm. Amelia Boynton, uh, F.D. Reese, and some other people who were there to lead that march. Mm-hmm. And I listened to them talking about Black people not only having the right to vote, and this was something that had to be done in order in a, in a nonviolent way, mm-hmm. because Dr. King always talked about his ministry of nonviolent. And they were given special instructions. And they were saying, regardless of what would happen, they wanted everybody to march quietly, mm-hmm. with dignity, keep their heads forward. And of course, after special instructions were were uh, given and always, whenever mass meetings were held, you know, prayer and faith was was all always in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. We sang and we prayed because the freedom song sometimes would be made up, mm-hmm. and it talked about the struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and everybody just would. That's why it was so easy to learn them because mm-hmm. the freedom songs was were the melodies of hope. It mm-hmm. gave us that hope. It gave us that courage and faith. So on this particular day, after special instructions were given, we were everybody was asked to go out and line up in twos. And as people were passing by me, because some of them were so accustomed to seeing me mm-hmm. being around, they were trying to discourage me mm-hmm. from, from marching. But even in spite of that, I just went on and joined them. And when I got outside, as people were lining up, mm-hmm. I saw one of the teachers, the late Mrs. Margaret Moore, and I went to her 
And I told her that I wanted to march and she was trying to discourage me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started crying. I didn't move. I just started crying. And she just took me by my hand and said, come on, child. Okay. Wow. You can march today. So we prayed before we got, we started marching, making our way to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And I'll never forget this. When we got on the main street, which is Broad Street, we had mm-hmm. made our way there. I could see the whites on the sidelines. Many of them came up to the marcher saying ugly words, the N-word, trying to distract them. Some were even throwing things at the marchers, trying to distract them. And, and some would even come up and just spit, hmm. you know, but everybody just kept on marching hmm. with their heads forward, continuing to make their way to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And then when we got to the Edmund Pettus Bridge, because I was midway, of the marches. Okay. And as I looked down, I'll never forget this. I saw policemen with tear gas masks. I saw state troopers on horses, the dogs, the mm-hmm. billy clubs. My heart had begun to just beat so fast because I knew that something was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But even in spite of that, the marches kept on marching. And then at at a certain point, we were asked to kneel down and pray again. And after we had prayed, the leaders of the march on that day, Congressman Lewis and Hosea Williams, they asked them to turn all the marches around. It would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march. And I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. Is that clear to you? I've got nothing further to say to you. And of course they refused. And once they refused to turn the marches around, racism unleashed its brutality upon all of the marches who were there. Tear gas had begun to burst in the air. People had begun to be beaten down with billy clubs as if they weren't human Mm. beings. The dogs and the horses had begun to push their way into the crowd, just trampling Mm. over people. And of course, you know, when you get tear gas burning your eyes and enough, it's it's a burning, hurtful Mm. sensation. It can almost blind you. And people were still trying to run, make their way back to Brown Chapel Church. And all I could think about is trying to run back home. And as I was running, I could still see the dogs and the horses over people. And, and then I could see people still falling. Some were crying and some were crawling. Because, I mean, people, some people had been beat and the tear gas, they couldn't hardly see. It was, it was, it was just rough. And, and my eyes were burning. Mm-hmm. And as I was in hurting, and as I was running, the late Hosea Williams, who was one of the leaders of that march, he was trying to comfort people. 
And I and he picked me up and my little legs were still galloping in his arms. And I looked at him because I was so devastated. And I turned to him and said in my own childish voice, put me down because you're not running fast enough. Oh my God. But he continued to try to comfort me and others as we made our way back to George Washington Carver Project. And mm-hmm. when we got to George Washington Carver Project, you can see the dogs, the horses, the troopers, the policemen who had come all the way from the Edmund Pettus Bridge to George Washington Carver Project, just mm-hmm. trying to just humiliate people. And mm-hmm. you can see people standing in their doors with sad faces, knowing that something had happened. Mm-hmm. And when I got to my home, there my parents were standing in the door. And mm-hmm. when they saw their child, it was it was as if they were waiting for their child to come home. They opened up the door. My dad had his shotgun in his hand. Mm-hmm. And when they opened up the door, I went completely between them, up the stairs to my room. And they came behind to try to comfort me because I had just been just traumatized Mm -hmm. based upon my experience and based upon what I had witnessed. And, 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 you know, as my parents were trying to comfort me, I went to my drawer because I was so accustomed uh, to writing things in my own childish way based upon what I was experiencing during that time. Mm-hmm. People that I had met at like Dr. King and others. And I went to my drawer and I got paper and a pencil and I started writing my funeral arrangement. And as I was doing that, I thought about a song that we used to sing during mass meetings. Mm-hmm. which reflected the words or the lyrics of Oh, freedom, mm-hmm. oh, freedom over me, over me, and before I be a slave, mm-hmm. I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. And as I thought about that song, the true meaning of that song Mm -hmm. became very meaningful and vivid to me on that particular day. I knew what that song meant Mm -hmm. on that day. And the picture, even today, sometimes I get emotion. We just finished celebrating virtually Mm the 56th anniversary. Mm -hmm. of the Bloody Sunday March in Selma. Mm -hmm. And even today, as I have traveled across the country speaking to people, and even when I go back over that bridge, I can't help not only to reflect, but I even become emotional sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's just how much we as a people have been at, as black people in particular have been traumatized, even those who were a part of that march, a part of that movement, and even those who weren't, we as black people have been traumatized 
lives Mm -hmm. from so much for a long time. And we still have to deal with it. And Mm -hmm. as we witness the challenges that we've seen in 2020 Mm -hmm. with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, and even 2021, Mm -hmm. that trauma is still there for us that we have to contend with. Mm -hmm. And I never would have thought that I would be witnessing something like that again in that way. Mm-hmm. senseless deaths mm-hmm. with people just being killed and, and mistreated and, and, and injustices. And, and I mean, I never, I always felt that racism ne- never left us. It was on the surface a lot. But there have been so many incidents and even with our leader that helped to really ignite that flame even more. It just saddened me so much. It saddened me. But one thing that, you know, and I always tell people, in the midst of bad things, is sometimes there's always some good things come out of it. Sure. But one thing that gave me hope and many other people across this country is when we saw young people and other people come to the forefront and protest, they Mm -hmm. said enough was enough. And they began to stand up for what they believe in, Mm -hmm. knowing that things were wrong. They were wrong then. They they weren't even living when it happened in the 60s. -hmm. But they can reflect on what happened in the 60s now in a different way to mm-hmm. make them act on something, to redirect and to uh, promote the goodness of something that needed to change. And they said enough was enough and they did it nonviolently. And mm-hmm. these were young people from all of color, mm-hmm. from all over the country, even globally. Mm-hmm. And even though we have protested it's mm-hmm. still much work to be done. Absolutely. Much work to be done. That's why we had to show up at the at the voting poll. Absolutely. For for our our this last presidential election and electing our president and our first African American uh woman president because we still got to got so much work to to do, but we still got to realize we got to start changing, protesting into policies. Absolutely. And public policies and understand that how we can get much more done through the power of our vote. Because we we all have seen that our vote is not only powerful, but it matters a great deal. It changes things. Mm-hmm. And we got to do even better with it because mm-hmm. we are still trying to be led with a whole lot of unjust situations and circumstances with policies, with voter suppression, even today. Absolutely. And it's so important for young people to stay woke mm-hmm. and understand and continue to become educated and trained 
and knowing more about policies and knowing about how you go about and, and how you be trained to, to be uh, in a nonviolent mode, mm-hmm. regardless of what, whatever it is, because Dr. King was a, a leader of strategy. Yes. And, and you can't be a good leader unless you, number one, you strateg- You know how to strategize, you know how to organize, you know how to mobilize. And I've seen that with young people. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's what I feel optimistic about because yeah. we got some young people that are coming up, that are being trained. People are taking them under their wings. And mm-hmm. we as a, adults now, we got to embrace them and become those ambassadors to help them because we got some new leaders, young new leaders. Absolutely. And these leaders are are, are making, and and one of the things that we've got to do with our young leaders, we, us as young people, I mean, older people, is that we've got to listen to them. Mm -hmm. We've got to listen to them. We got to continue to listen to them as we continue to mold and help shape and mentor them and train them because they have a lot to offer and they have seen enough. They have witnessed enough Mm -hmm. to know the difference. Absolutely. Um, that's actually a great, I love that you said that last bit because it, it's like it's, it's, it's this, this big theme. You know, of course, there was a film, Selma, and then uh, John Legend and Common, they did the song Glory. And one of my favorite lines in that song, it says, um, no one can achieve the movement. Some, da, 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 is that he says it takes the wisdom of the elders and the young people's energy. And so what you just said there just basically, you know, reiterated that, you know, we can work together across generations. Um, we, uh, and it, 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 it requires listening on both parts. And I, I really right. appreciate you saying that um, because there's some things, I think that young people, we are experiencing still traumatic events, but we're experiencing them differently. We're living in a time where the internet is a thing and, you know, for me, you said you mentioned George Floyd. I personally have not seen the video of George Floyd's murder because I just, it's so readily available and it's already always over the news and everything. And that, that um, actually changes the way that we experience these things. So we, we see it all the time. And, as I, and, I, and on saying that as well, uh, I wanted to point out too that, you know, Bloody Sunday, a lot of historians look as, at that moment as the, a, a moment where the civil rights movement kicked into high gear. Obviously, it had been going on since, you know, really all the way back into like the 20s and 30s. But that was the first time that the world had seen that kind of violence enacted on Black folks at that time because you had uh, TV cameras there. And they Bye. still had the audacity to record that, to be on camera doing that. And so uh, people saw that. And so, you know, you were there to witness and be a part of this moment that really the rest of the world finally just kind of woke up and so saw, oh, this is a problem. We need to, to, to handle that. So um, thank you so much for sharing your story and, 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 and you know, the, your thoughts on what it's like today, the things that we have to pay attention today to move forward. Uh, I, I want to ask you another question about, you know, you kind of move forward into present day. 
and we talked about Selma in the '60s. What are your thoughts on Selma now? What's 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 going on in Selma, and and, and um, yeah, what's going on in Selma? Well, I must say that you know uh, there have been some improvement, but we still have a long way to go. And yeah. when I say that, uh, since the '60s, you know, we've had uh, two African American mayors, our first two African elections of, uh, of our mayors. And, um, and then of course, uh, we have had a transition in the election process in Selma with majority of African-American council people on the, mm-hmm. on the council. But that, 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 that's one thing. But Another thing in, uh, about Selma that needs to happen now that's very critical, and that's why I say it's so much more work to be done, um, just like it is in Montgomery and many other cities, particularly when it comes to young people. Number one, uh, Selma is a small city, and, and, and it's a poor city. Mm-hmm. And there's a definitive need uh, for economic development. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. And, you know, that takes time. A, a lot of politics is, is uh, with that. And uh, But for me, being a youth advocate, a lot of my emphasis is, has been, and will always be on young people. And I'm going to tell you why. Mm-hmm. It is so necessary for us, not just in Selma, but in any small community and in county areas, Mm -hmm. uh, for us to mobilize, organize, and continue to educate our young people in order that they would get engaged and stay engaged Mm -hmm. with what's going on in their community. And mm-hmm. see, this is one of these things that you you almost have to go out there and grab them. Sure. <laughs> you know, you it ain't it's not it's nothing that you can put up a fly and invite them to a meeting for. Mm-hmm. You got to you got to use creative ways to grab the attention of young people and for and to find out what they like, where their talents are. And to use those mechanisms to get them to do some of the things that you need them to do. And Mm -hmm. I know that works because I've tried it. And in in a small city like Selma, there are a lot of young, young, young men and women there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm beginning to see some of those young women and some of those young men rise, rise up for the occasion. Mm-hmm. And and but the other thing about it is, is that as they rise up, it does not subtract. Just like you just said, we got to work across both lives mm-hmm. into uh, the generate just generational because they still need our help. Right. And we've got to embrace them and we got to listen to them, listen to, to what their visions are. Because we need some of those young people to stay in Selma, not to leave Selma. Right. You know, but before we can, uh, before we can 
try to influence them to stay in Selma. We got to have them doing something there that's of substance and valid and something that they can see and feel. Absolutely. In terms of the need for them to stay there. Because it's 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 about politics mm-hmm. in, in many ways, but in many ways it's not about politics. There are other things that mm-hmm. they can contribute to the community to help mm-hmm. bring them out, to help them because you don't have to you don't have to be a politician to be a change agent. Okay. Absolutely. And that's something that we got to instill in our young people, mm-hmm. uh, especially in small communities. Mm-hmm. You, everybody got something to offer. Mm-hmm. And, and, but we have to start engaging and training them in ways where not only they are engaging with something that they like to do, mm-hmm. but engaging them in things that they need to be exposed to. Absolutely. You got to take them outside of Selma and outside of these other places and expose them so they can see things from a different light. Absolutely. And and I think the, the more that we work with our, our young people and mentoring them, mm-hmm. because that's the big word now, mm-hmm. mentoring. And we have to we have to have continuity with that. And the, the more that we are able to do that and give them some leadership responsibilities mm-hmm. and be behind them to help see them through that, then you're, 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 you're producing leaders. You're producing and planting seeds for people to, uh, young people to make some choices and to bring out the best in them. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so... When I look at Selma, I always have hope. Sure. I look at Selma today op- in an optimistic way because we have a, uh, our second term mayor, Mayor James Perkins. He was a mayor um, some years ago and he just got elected. And right now I'm seeing him on the front end because it takes time to turn things around. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to have young people working behind you mm-hmm. and training you, you training and mentoring them so that when you leave and when you've done what you need to do, when they come in, they would have had some training and some education on something to be a better leader. Absolutely. So a lot of that has to happen, but Selma needs jobs. Selma mm. needs healthcare. Selma mm. needs better education system, just like a whole lot of other, other places. How are we going to do that? We got to get people together. Yeah. We got to get, and it, 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 and it doesn't have to be just black folk. It needs to be people of color to mm. strategize, to organize, mm. you know? And, and, and when you, that's where you start. And then that's when you can start seeing some changes. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, there's actually another program with the Alabama Humanities Alliance. We just got done talking about Selma and, you know, how, you know, after Bloody Sunday, after the Selma Montgomery March, there was still a lot of work that needs to be done that wasn't necessarily just based on voting. There's all this other stuff that needs to be um, right. worked on as well. And so I think I thank you for laying it out like that. Um, so I have two Final questions. The one is kind of taking 
the general questions, but it's kind of taking a different angle. Um, since it is Women's History Month, you obviously are a woman of history and we're celebrating you, but also who are some of the women in your life um, who've inspired you or who had an impact on your life um, over time? Well, let, let me say this. Uh, there have been a, a number of women who have inspired mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And there have been some who have inspired me more than others mm-hmm. because of the exposure that I had as a young, as a young girl, mm-hmm. uh, particularly being in the midst of the uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, I, I attribute a lot to my mother. Mm-hmm. My mother was a strong woman. Mm-hmm. And I saw her in so many different lights in terms of where her strength was mm-hmm. in the midst of in the midst of controversy mm-hmm. and in the midst of trying to make sure that her children had the best. And then in the midst of, you know, every parent have to deal with their children based upon their own individual characteristics. Mm-hmm. I saw her strength show up. In, in many lights. Mm-hmm. So I, number one, I attribute a lot to my mother. Mm-hmm. Then after attributing a lot to my mother, I saw a lot of strength and I saw a great foundation uh, that that my grandmother had. Okay. And that was totally respected because see, grandmamas didn't play back then. <laughs> no. You know, grandmamas, grandmama, they were, they were the they were the they were the foundation for 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 the parents and and they were the foundation for the commit the community the village. Mm-hmm. So back mm-hmm. then, if they see they needed to spank you or put you in order, they would do that. Mm. And I saw a lot of strength in my in my uh, grandmother because as one person we didn't play with, not even my mama. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I, and I saw a lot of strength from her. And then the other thing is, I was surrounded by many teachers mm-hmm. that really took me under their umbrella mm-hmm. in a different way. And and it's not to uh, say that I was distinguished from others. I was just a different type student. Sure, I was the type of student who was always involved in programs, ready to mm-hmm. do what was asked of me. And sometimes I asked to be on programs. Sure. And once they saw that in me, they saw other talents that I had, which really extended me to become in, involved in other extracurriculum activities that a lot of my peers couldn't get involved in because their parents didn't have the money to pay for it. Mm. So some of these teachers, like my godparents and some other teachers, took me under their uh, umbrella, and um, and they they started planting seeds in me in a different way that I couldn't see at home that mm. I saw on a middle class level. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then in the midst of the movement the exposure that I got from people who came to be a part of that struggle, uh, and I can name many of them, I just saw a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of class, Mm. education. And then after all, 
in the midst of all of those turbulent times, mm -hmm. I developed character. Mm -hmm. And I was inspired and motivated mm -hmm. to go to college. Oh, wow. And a lot of them saw that in me. Mm -hmm. Dr. King was the, one of the first who, who inspired me to go to college. Because, you know, our parents weren't talking about that. They mm -hmm. didn't have the money. They didn't have grants back then. Mm -hmm. And after he inspired me, there were other women in my life. And I'm not naming because it, it's just so many. Understand. That I can, but but different women inspire me in different ways. And of course, uh, after having met people like uh, Coretta Scott King at an early age, her husband introduced me to her. Mm -hmm. I saw the class that she had mm -hmm. and I saw her demeanor. Mm -hmm. And she always had inspirational words to say to me. Mm -hmm. And uh and getting those type of connections from people like her and getting um, connections from people like Viola Luuso, who mm -hmm. was killed in the movement, who came mm -hmm. to join in that struggle. So it's just so many different names. Uh, but I, I, I just got a lot of different seeds that planted, that was planted in me at an early age to help to shape and mold me into mm -hmm. not only me being the person that I am, mm -hmm. but even based upon the choices that I made for myself as I continue to matriculate uh, from high school, in high school, college, and even now. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, the, and so this last question I ask everybody who comes onto the show, because uh, it, it is about, Higher Ground Society is about serving Alabama. And we're always looking forward and, and always, you know, hoping for the best for the state. So what are you, what is your hope for Alabama as we move through these, you know, these upcoming years? What is, what is your hope for the state? Well, you know, at such a time as this, my hope for Alabama is for policies to become to come into place on a local and state level, especially for Alabama, mm -hmm. to help to protect its citizens. Mm. And when I say that, I'm talking about different areas because right now we are in the midst of a pandemic mm -hmm. that's very serious. Everybody is not on the same page. No. Because it's a political thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's why I'm saying that we we always got to look at policies when mm -hmm. it comes to change. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and especially for right change. So right now, many decisions have been made and many decisions are being made, but we're not on the same page to do what's right. Mm -hmm. We have a white system for certain things and we have a black system for certain things. I mean, mm -hmm. we see that. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that, that as we continue to get things in place from a political standpoint, mm -hmm. and I realize it's gonna take time, and especially at, at, as a state, a, a Southern state as Alabama, mm -hmm. it's gonna take time for policies to be changed, but we got to get the right people in place 
the mm-hmm. right politicians in place on a, on a local and state level mm-hmm. for Alabama to do the right things uh, for everybody, not right. just for black folk and, and not for white folk. We got to come together and do the right thing because right now we got some policies being changed that, that a lot of folk don't even know about and it's going to continue to impact, impact black folk. It's mm-hmm. going to continue to impact uh, economics. It's going to continue to uh, impact education. It's going to continue to impact voter suppression. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of people, but we got to have people that's going to be out there that's going to be educating people before the election comes up. Sure. That's okay. what I've always had a concern about. Let's not wait until it, that's why we got to be training and molding young people who have an interest and they are out here, but mm-hmm. we got to teach them. We got to train them and we got to have them under our umbrellas so that they can understand and become more educated uh, on things before they run and they not just jumping in a race Right. and they understanding public policies, mm-hmm. you know, and um, so I'm just hoping, and, and I said it in a broad way, mm-hmm. because it's, it's so much that's needed under that umbrella that we've got to put things in place that's going to uh, protect the citizens because mm-hmm. we are all being impacted. And, but Black folks are being impacted the most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's wow. why the voting, that voting mechanism and understanding the power of the vote, mm-hmm. we got to keep pressing that. And we Absolutely. and we don't need to keep pressing. We got to be like Stacey Abrams and some of the others in that in Atlanta and Latasha Brown. We got to press it before elections come up. We got to press it throughout the year. That's right. Because we still have a lot of young people out there who are still not registered voters. And mm-hmm. we still have young people out there who are becoming aged to become young voters. Mm-hmm. We need to be constantly talking and educating them on that so they look forward to it. And, and we, we, we just can't wait until elections come up mm-hmm. because there are a lot of things that need to change, uh, even though we have seen some progress but we got a long way to go just in this, just in this whole state. But okay. we've got to get people in place who's going to be in government to change policies that's going to protect the citizens all across the line. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because you're right. I mean, we're right in the middle of... Um, of a legislative session and I have a lot of friends who, you know, work for the ACLU and different organizations that are there in Montgomery and they're doing a great phenomenal job of keeping people up to date about what's going on or keeping, you know, to the moment, really, if you follow them on Twitter and you're right, some of the things that we're seeing, particularly about, um, you know, like you said, the the voting, uh, that the trans community is under attack in the state. There's so much that's going on. Um, where it's concerning about Alabama's citizens and whether or not the, the people in, in power are actually doing what they need to do to protect everybody. So it's also a common thread to everyone I have on the, on the show 
they say something very similar. You know, it's all about focusing on the community, focusing on the people of the state and making sure that everybody's taken care of. So you're, you're just joining the choir. <laughs> at this yeah, point. And, and, and see, I'm of the belief. And, you know, when I talk to young people and deal with young people, it, it's, it ain't just even though black people have and are still being impacted, but it ain't just about black folk now. Mm-hmm. We got to come together as in unity and a, as a coalition with people of color, you know, and we need, that's why our mentality needs to stay, mm-hmm. you know, because okay. there are other people of color who have the same interests, the same concern. And when these people uh, that we talked about earlier that was out there protesting, you saw people of color. They, mm-hmm. they showed up. And they still have uh, men of the same concern, mm-hmm. and okay. and 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 I'm and and that's why I keep placing emphasis on young folks because we we start with the high school students mm-hmm. because it's never too late to do what's right. Mm-hmm. It's never too late, and it's never you're never too young to become educated. Mm-hmm. I made some decisions when I was seven and eight years old, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not saying that it has to be under the same circumstance, but I am of the belief that when you get young people involved and mm-hmm. engaged and you're constantly talking with them and you're trying to discover what is it that they like to do, what is it? Uh, where where do their talents and abilities lie? What mm-hmm. are they good at? That's where you start with them at. Mm-hmm. They, they, they become, in a sense, where you're giving them special attention. That's mentoring. Mm-hmm. That's mentoring. Absolutely. You're giving them the special attention to help them to do the things that they uh, have uh, aspirations for. You're teaching them. You're enhancing them. You're helping them. Mm-hmm. And and when you got their respect, mm-hmm. you can change a lot of things with. Absolutely. Uh, so that actually reminds me. I wanted to 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 check in. So what are you doing these days in terms of work? Like, so what are you? You said you work with the youth a lot, and I, I follow you on online. I see you working with a lot of young folks. So, um, what do you have any programs or anything that you'd like to share about that, that's going on? Yes. Well, you know, I've always been a youth advocate, and and that was that that whole uh, aspiration for me came when I was a young girl because it was when my life was changed as right. a poor girl, and I knew that I wanted to always work, particularly with underprivileged uh, young people. And mm-hmm. then later I would find that it wasn't just about underprivileged people, it was about everybody. Cause mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what, how old you are. It doesn't matter whether you middle class, poor, whatever. All people have issues. Mm-hmm. And at this, at this, uh, at such a time as this, you know, it, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of issues that are going on with our young people. And, and and that's why mental health mm-hmm. is, is very critical now. And that's why it's so important to give young people the opportunity to dialogue and talk about things that they can't talk about at home. And sometimes they can't talk about at school or at church. So mm-hmm. I'm right now, since the COVID has been going on, I've been doing a lot of dialoguing with young people 
on Zooms, different Zooms. Mm -hmm. And it has been very effective because these have been young people of color, mm -hmm. males and females, and they've been able to say some things that they've never been able to say before. And mm -hmm. it has freed them up and taken them out of bondage because mm -hmm. they felt that they not only, it was not only a threat for them because you have to set the environment for them. That's right. You know, you just can't allow them to come into something and for them to just, you have to set the tone and, and there's, there's a skill set for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, those are the type of things that I'm doing. And, and then I'm also mentoring other older, uh, younger people uh, that's younger than myself that has an interest in mentoring uh, young people so okay. that they can be more trained to continue to work with young young people because it's a skill with it. It is. And you have true. to be very creative. You have mm -hmm. to be very creative with them with that. And um, and and I'm also working with, um, that's part of my women's group that I found uh, seven years ago. And, uh, and then I'm also um, working with other youth groups, uh, giving them a lot of youth group and group, group uh, organization call upon me for advice for different things that they're trying to endeavor into. Okay. Uh, that they uh, need recommendations on and because it's not easy. It's not easy mobilizing uh, young people and getting them to do what you think you want them to do. <laughs> You've got to be creative. <laughs> and that's why I always say you got to first get a connection with them first. <laughs> you know, you just can't run up on some folks because somebody giving you names of people, whatever, right. you have to establish a connection with them first. They right. got to get to know you and you got to get to know them. So how are you going to do that? You got to strategize with that. Mm -hmm. You got to ask questions. You got to spend some time with them. Once you get that connection, you're going to know when that when that is because they're going to be responding to you differently. So mm -hmm. I do a lot of consultation and giving people recommendations on that and, and helping them to create small things, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes folk come out too big. They, they be coming out with these big projects. Mm -hmm. But you have to start with small things as you're trying to get the connection first. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I always uh, work with different organizations with I do etiquette training, which is so much needed now mm -hmm. uh, with uh, table etiquette, communication, which is social etiquette, mm -hmm. and also with dressing etiquette. And another part that um, that add, that I'm adding on to uh, with some of the uh, things that I used to do in my program before the COVID came about is leadership development. Okay. That's, a, that's, that's something that's very much needed. And then, of course, um, all of the other components of it is is teaching them more about public policy and oh. and and on the public policy you can't teach and train people on the leadership without them dealing with voter education mm -hmm. and engaging in it and and all of that 
you have to you have to put on the leadership development community service because they they got to know what it means to pay it forward. That's right. That's right. Well, you are very busy <laughs> and yes. doing a lot, still doing a lot of great work for the community. And um, I'm so grateful that you are here. I'm grateful for all the work that you have done and for your sacrifices and all your experience. Uh, and thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, I thank you so much. You just heard from Ms. Cheyenne Webb Christberg, the youngest participant in the Bloody Sunday Selma to Montgomery March, which took place on March 7th, 1965. I'm so grateful to Ms. Webb Christberg for joining me in conversation and sharing her historic life story. It was a perfect way to close out the Higher Ground Society Women's History Month 2021 series. The music used in this episode was created by Birmingham producer Jasmine Garfield. Also, the audio you heard during Ms. Webb Christberg's account of Bloody Sunday was the actual audio recorded on that day by the news media. We're grateful to those who recorded, preserved, and archived that material, which allowed us to step into that fateful moment. I hope you've enjoyed this series. Be sure to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss next month's guests. Then, we will be having Alabama poets who will help us celebrate National Poetry Month 2021. Until then, take care. Peace.